0: If you could go today to Arlington National Cemetery, you would want, of course, to visit the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. But then, if I could guide you, you might want to walk south southwest down one of the paths away from the memorial to a quiet corner where you can find two headstones not far from each other one for William Hushka, died July 28, 1932, and one for Eric Carlson, died a few days later, August 2nd, 1932. Both served in the United States Army in the Great War, that's why they're buried here. Both died in the Great Depression while enlisted in a different army and a different cause. If you were here in Arlington on July 28, 1932, you probably wouldn't have been able to hear the gunshots that killed Hushka almost immediately and fatally wounded Carlson. You probably would, though, have been able to hear, maybe even see, the horses of the 2nd Squadron of the 3rd United States Cavalry as they went through nearby, the men with their sabres ready. They had just finished special riot training, and their executive officer, maybe you could see him too, he tended to stand out, even in a mass of uniforms, It was Major George S. Patton, Jr. He and his soldiers were heading for the Memorial Bridge to cross into Washington City proper. By night, they would have won a victory, a rout, really, against a host of thousands that styled themselves the Bonus Expeditionary Force or, for short, the Bonus Army. In the summer of 1932, nobody knew for sure how many millions of American workers were without jobs. It was more than 10 million, maybe more than 11 or even 12 million. What was definitely true is that something like one in every four workers who wanted a job, who needed a job, couldn't get one. What was definitely true is that, by any standard, the Great Depression had grown to a sickening, staggering tragedy by then, entailing a toll so immense it beggared belief. By then, the Depression was about three years old. Three years since the stock market fell, since people suddenly stopped buying goods they couldn't afford with money they didn't have, since factories started laying people off, since people stopped paying their loans and mortgages and banks started failing. Three years nearly had passed since President Herbert Hoover scolded Americans for worrying, saying, lack of confidence in the economic future or the basic strength of business in the United States is foolish. And then, in the fall of 1929, when unemployment was still negligible and only the stock exchange had shuttered, maybe then what Hoover did, what he said, maybe then that was the thing that anyone would have done. Tell people to get out there and go shopping for cars and washing machines and gramophones and radios and all the things they'd been buying for ten years that had kept the United States economy, or much of it anyway, roaring. But a year after he said that, near the end of 1930, President Hoover went to Congress and admitted it was a depression, all right. It was just, he said, that nobody could do anything about it. Economic depression cannot be cured by legislative action or executive pronouncement, he said. Not least because the sickness that afflicted the United States had come from overseas. The major forces of depression now lie outside of the United States. When he said that, by that time, there were more than 4 million unemployed, and the unemployment rate was getting up in the neighborhood of 9% or more. A year later still, near the end of 1931, President Hoover noted with pride that 700,000 Americans, and of course their families, were getting their livelihood from federal public works. One of those public works was, as it happens, the Great Boulder Canyon Project that the Hoover administration had named Hoover Dam in the president's honor. Washington, D.C. was doing its part, the president said, and so were the states, and any further relief for the unemployed must come from the private sector. That was at a time when more than 7 million Americans remained unemployed and the unemployment rate was up around 16%. And it had been rising, and it went on rising, and the longer people went without work, the harder it was for them to get work. That was the nature of unemployment. It fed on itself. So in January 1932, the presidents did sign a law that created a fund called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, whose principal business was to keep banks afloat. Hoover hadn't wanted to do it, but Congress had pushed him, as had the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, to try to prevent utter financial catastrophe. And for people who weren't bankers and didn't have recourse to the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, the president appointed Walter Gifford, the chief executive of AT&T, to head an advisory committee on unemployment with the idea that Gifford and his committee would say what the president wanted them to say that the federal government couldn't do more than it was doing. But then President Hoover's hand-picked committee of businessmen and experts told him federal aid for the unemployed was indeed what the nation needed. That's what Gifford told him, and the president said he would try to stiffen Gifford's backbone or else he'd have to sack Gifford and start all over with a gutsier committee, one that was prepared to refuse federal aid for the people who didn't have jobs. For at bottom, that was what Hoover needed to hear from his experts. That federal aid to the unemployed was unnecessary, because Hoover believed that federal aid to the unemployed would lead to socialism, to collectivism, to Bolshevism. By that time, by the time he was thinking about firing Walter Gifford for telling him that people who didn't have jobs needed help from the federal government, it was February 1932, and there were around 11 million unemployed people in the United States, or close to 23% of the workforce. and in March of 1932, just a few weeks after that, on the other side of the country, an unemployed veteran of the Great War named Walter Waters spoke to a group of other unemployed veterans in Portland, Oregon, and told his fellow former soldiers they ought to get together and travel across the country in their thousands to march on Washington, DC, to present their demands for help to Congress and the president. It was Walter Waters' view that they ought to go there rather than send letters or even telegrams, because the lesson of America, so far as he understood it, was that personal lobbying paid, regardless of the justice or injustice of the demand. The demand, just or unjust, would be both simple and immense. Help us. Veterans of the Great War had a lump sum payment coming to them by act of Congress, This was before the G.I. Bill of Rights, before there was a standing plan of benefits for those who served the United States. But Congress had, after the Great War, voted that the old soldiers could have a payout, a bonus, they came to call it. They would just have to wait until 1945. And many of the veterans of the Great War, suffering in the Great Depression, wondered if maybe they could have their bonus now, a little bit early. So with Walter Waters and thousands of others, maybe tens of thousands, those veterans would go to Washington to ask for it. And that was the beginning of the bonus expeditionary force, named after the American Expeditionary Force, in which many of the men had taken part a dozen years before, going over there to France to fight to make the world safe for democracy. In Portland, Oregon alone, where Walter Waters gave his speech, there were maybe 4,500 unemployed veterans, and they hit the road however they could, by truck, by train, In small groups and larger ones heading east, hopping freights, cadging or stealing rides, going to use their rights to petition their legislators. Local politicians on their route saw them coming and wanted to get them out of town. Nobody wanted a group of young, unemployed, rootless men gathering anywhere for very long. Notably, the mayor of Cleveland, Ohio, paid train fare for bonus marchers so they could get on to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and anyway, get out of his jurisdiction. And so they made their unhappy way across the stricken nation to Washington, where the chief of police, another veteran of the Great War, a man named Pelham Glassford, began to arrange shelter and food for them in camps. The marchers came in their thousands to the National Mall in Washington, to the Anacostia Flats near the river, to stay in abandoned buildings that belonged to the United States Treasury to wherever they could find a place to rest while they grouped and decided how to lobby for their cause. To keep order, Walter Waters began drilling the one-time soldiers, making them march, showing good order, and rooting out communists. As one admirer wrote of Waters, he was a right-winger, a fine American. In the camps, they had a piano for entertainment. They had barbers to keep clean-cut. They had a comedian. Somebody got married... A baby was born. They started a newspaper, the BEF News, which sold tens of thousands of copies on the streets of Washington, D.C. to citizens curious about what was going on. The BEF News said it wasn't about the veterans and their bonus this March. It was a permanent movement. The marchers' view of pressing needs takes in all the American citizens who now suffer from unemployment and penury. Their reaction to the present situation may be summed up in a single elemental thought. Billions for the bankers who wrecked the nation, but nothing for the humble people who face privation and misery. The Congress did seem to take that view. While the House of Representatives, where the Democrats had held a majority since the 1930 elections, passed a bill to pay the bonus, and the Senate took up the bill for debate in mid-June, Hoover told one of his secretaries, They can pass the bill if they want to. I will throw it back at them with a veto as soon as they do. The president's threat turned out to be unnecessary. The Senate voted down the bill. So there wouldn't be a bonus that summer. But the marchers stayed. They weren't done. They didn't know what they were going to do, but they weren't going to go anywhere. Walter Waters began working on a national bonus army organization. The BEF News reported he stoutly maintains that government is now controlled by a favored few and that it should be returned to the people. A lot of folks talked that way about governments in 1932. Some of them were fascists. Walter Waters started talking about forming a new organization called the Khaki Shirts along the lines of Mussolini's black shirts and Hitler's brown shirts. The BEF News published an editorial in support of this plan, It printed an opinion piece warning the whirlwinds of rebellion were about to shake the world, and the rivers of America will run red with human blood. So it might not surprise you to know that when President Hoover looked at the Bonus Army, he worried. But he didn't worry about fascists, he worried about communists. He declined a request to meet the Bonus Army's leaders saying, I won't receive any communists. He stayed out of the public eye for fear of assassins, but he was working on a solution to what he regarded as a dangerous mob of leftists. On July 26th, the President and the Secretary of War and the Attorney General met to discuss what to do. Hoover wanted an end to this encampment. As one of his aides wrote, There has been too much dilly-dallying already. The marchers have rapidly turned from bonus seekers to communists or bums. It's time for determined action. For a first step toward getting the marchers out, the administration was going to exercise its rights. It would tell the marchers who were squatting in the abandoned buildings that belonged to the United States Treasury they had to leave. Waters got the message and told his men on July 27th they would have to move out. A sympathetic nearby property owner had offered to let them go stay on his land, and he had room for all of them. The next morning, July 28th, the Hoover administration told police chief Glassford that he had to get the marchers out of the buildings before afternoon. So the chief went down there with his men to evict the veterans. They weren't ready to go yet. A fight started. Some marchers picked up chunks of masonry from the floors of the crumbling buildings and threw them at the police. One veteran grabbed Chief Glassford himself, pulling off his badge. The chief calmed the rioters down. But after that, the White House decided the police weren't up to the job and the president ordered out the United States Army. Shortly after the order was issued, but before the army arrived, fighting resumed. One policeman pulled out his pistol and fired killing William Hushka almost instantly and wounding Eric Carlson fatally. Over in Army headquarters, the Chief of Staff, General Douglas MacArthur, got the message from the White House. He sent for his uniform. He'd worn a white suit to work that morning. In those peacetime days, He and his aides, including Dwight Eisenhower, generally reported to the office in civilian clothes. Getting into military gear was really only the last step for the general, who had been preparing for some time now to take on the Bonus Army. In addition to ordering special anti-riot drills, MacArthur had brought armored vehicles into Washington, D.C., ordering them to drive on side roads so as to avoid civilians, and instructing them that if they met any curious bystanders, they should lie saying they were taking experimental vehicles to a demonstration. MacArthur was getting ready, as he said, to break the back of the BEF. Cavalry, infantry, tanks and all, the army rolled into the nation's capital. The action against the veterans was brief. Patton's men swung their sabres at the marchers. The soldiers launched tear gas. By then it was the end of the working day, and commuters bound for home gathered to watch in amazement and sometimes rage. Some shouted at the soldiers to fight fair, and some called the troops yellow. But the soldiers did their job and efficiently cleared out the former soldiers from the mall. Then MacArthur grouped and fed his troops and readied them to go over the river, to clear out the encampment on the Anacostia Flats. A you'd still stood here in Arlington on that afternoon. You might have been able to hear the distant sound of military action, even if there were no gunshots. Maybe you could see the tear gas, even. Maybe you could hear the shouts. President Hoover could from the White House and evidently decided it sounded bad. He told his secretary of war to tell MacArthur to stand down. And the general refused. The messenger who came from the White House remembered that the general... Was very much annoyed in having his plans interfered with. Eisenhower, for his part, recalled MacArthur saying he was busy and did not want to be bothered by people coming down and pretending to bring orders. So the army did, as its general said, and burned the rest of the encampment. Flames rose into the sky for much of the night. It was late, around 11 p.m., when the operation was complete. General MacArthur spoke to the press. That mob down there was animated by the essence of revolution, he said. The president had had to act. The secretary of war stood next to the general and told the press that the whole operation had been undertaken from start to finish with the president's knowledge and approval, which it hadn't, of course, but Hoover did not want to challenge MacArthur. The attorney general investigated. When his report came out, it said that the operation was sound. It said that the soldiers hadn't burned the camps, that the marchers had done it themselves. It said that the injuries were unavoidable. By then, newsreels tended to show otherwise, and on screens around the nation, Americans could see flickering images of their fellow unemployed citizens beaten and driven by soldiers on horseback and choked by tear gas. One of the casualties of the operation was a baby, Bernard Myers, whose parents had brought him to the camps, He died after being tear-gassed. The administration told the press that the child had been sick already. Asked by reporters if Bernard hadn't been very ill, doctors said maybe. But being gassed didn't do him any good. Newspapers carried lists of the wounded, many of whom had been cut on the head and ears, and who suffered from gas. Veterans of the Great War gassed in their own country by their own army. Newspapers dug up the stories of Hushka, a Lithuanian immigrant who lived in Chicago, had a daughter, and Carlson, a Swedish immigrant, lived in Oakland, had served in combat during the war. And when Americans watched the eviction on the newsreels, they saw people much like themselves or people they knew, because by then, by the summer of 1932, and maybe one in four Americans were unemployed, it was easy to see what it might be like to be living on the streets, to be asking your government for help, and to get soldiers and tear gas instead. President Hoover went on claiming that the eviction had been the right thing to do, that the marchers had been communists, and he omitted to mention that General MacArthur had carried out a brief coup in order to drive them away, probably because Hoover thought it was more important that the marchers be sent home with a show of force than that civilian government be preserved for the course of an entire afternoon. By contrast, Hoover's opponent in the presidential election, New York Governor Franklin Roosevelt, looked at the episode and worried not about communism but about fascism. The men in the camps did not know quite what they wanted, and Roosevelt opposed paying the bonus to them. He thought cash payments to the unemployed were demeaning, and that the federal government ought to hire people who needed jobs, not pay them off. But just because he did not favor paying the bonus, he wrote, I wouldn't gas the veterans asking for it. Political violence fed on itself. If it was troubling to have the destitute veterans encamped and parading and demanding money, it was even more troubling to let the army solve the problem. Roosevelt told an aide that MacArthur was one of the most dangerous men in the country, the sort of person who appealed to Nazi-minded Americans who thought democracy had run its course and that the totalitarians had grasped the necessities of the time. Roosevelt disagreed, and the hallmark of his campaign for the presidency was that democracy ought to be preserved in an age when it was under threat and that an effective response to the Depression by the government would be the best way to prove to people that democracy still worked. Less than a month after the eviction of the BEF, Republicans began calling on President Hoover to tell him the election was lost. The Bonus Army episode hadn't lost it for him, to be sure, but like the tear gas in little Bernard Myers, it hadn't done him any good. One of his secretaries wrote on August 21st that, From morning to late afternoon, one caller after another told him that state after state had slipped away. The president did not want to hear it. If another man tells me today that I am going to lose, I will kick him through that door." He did lose, of course, in a landslide, and Franklin Roosevelt became president in due course on March 4, 1933, the last president to be inaugurated so late after the election. And then came Roosevelt's famous Hundred Days. But before they were out, a smaller version of the Bonus Army, maybe 3,000 marchers, returned to Washington to petition the new president. Roosevelt set up a camp for them with sanitation and shelter and food. And one day, the new president's chief political advisor, Louis Howe, asked Eleanor Roosevelt to drive him out to the camp, which she did. She liked to get out and see the country. When the two of them got there in the car, Howe said he thought he might take a nap, while the first lady went and toured the camp, which she did. The marchers loved her she loved them. In her press conference afterward, she said they were grand looking boys who had a fine spirit. One of the marchers said Hoover sent the army Roosevelt sent his wife. Roosevelt also sent them a job offer. The newly created Civilian Conservation Corps a reforestation force he had promised in the campaign would set aside as many as 25,000 jobs for veterans. Within a few weeks, most of the marchers accepted the offer of CCC work to plant trees or improve drainage to work on the nation's parks, and the bonus movement largely evaporated. Walter Waters, the BEF leader who compared himself to Mussolini and Hitler and called for a khaki-shirt movement to clean up government in America, hadn't even come with the bonus army in 1933. He could have, but he said there's no need for it now. The BEF, though it did not get the bonus, served its purpose we now have a government back there that is recognizing and attempting to improve the unemployment situation. You've been listening to The Bonus Army, one of a series of New Deal stories, true tales of the United States in the time of the New Deal. It was written and narrated by me, I'm Eric Rauchway and this is my job. I research and write and talk about the history of the United States. I hope you'll join me again. Until then, here's to happier days.